Hi, everybody. I'm so glad for us to be back together with session three, where we're going to talk about something I call paradox prediction and perception. Now, we know in the first two sessions, we did a whole journey of looking at what happens in the body and creating those body maps so we can check in periodically throughout the day to tap into that beautiful, rich data information that the body holds for us as we minimize the gap between when it shows up in the body and when it shows up in the mind all of it allowing us to more skillfully show up as leaders and also looking at how we keep our bodies in healthy states of regulation. Now, all of that was happening in the body. Now, the brain is, of course, part of the body, but we're going to shift a little upwards now. And we're going to talk about something that, as I said, I call paradox prediction and perception. Now, paradox is something you can probably imagine what that is. I use a very simple definition that I borrow from Merriam-Webster's dictionary. Paradox is simply something that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense. Now, I'm just going to pause there for a moment because take a moment to think about all the things that happen every day that to you seem to be nonsensical or contrary to what would make sense, what would serve a greater good or the greatest people. We experience that every single day. Now, here's the challenge with that. We also know that our brain is a predicting organ. If we look at the work, for example, of Dr. Regina Polly, uh, Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett, we know that the brain is busy calculating, predicting our way through the day. In fact, you can see here an excerpt from the, the good work in the article, The Predicting Brain by Regina Polly, that basically the brain pulls from its life experience to predict, to predict, to predict the future and every few moments, and we begin to live the future we expect. But what it is pulling from is simply our narrow data set of life experiences. So as you can imagine, it's subject to misinterpretation, misunderstanding, and things like bias, and all kinds of other opportunities to not see what is fully present. So because it is, it is predicting the future every few moments, and we then live the future we expect, we start to place ourselves in these narrow buckets, these narrow pathways and grooves. Now, you may even think of times where you've been in an organization and you have gone on autopilot when you're trying to create something new. Oh, well, this is the way we've always done it. This is the way we're going to, we can't do that here. Um, actually, when we tried that before, this is what happened. Now, that's not to say that that information isn't helpful because it all starts to build your wisdom. But remember earlier in one in the first session, I talked about moving from judgment and certainty into discernment and curiosity. And it's in that lens through which we create and co-create and we begin to expand the data set that the brain pulls from, that we begin to engage in new experiences, new interactions with people. So we put more information there for the brain to predict from. If we don't do that, it becomes very subjective. These life experiences are very subjective. And so we want to make sure that we help bring the fullest set of information for us to be able to interact with other people. Now, let me give you a quick introduction to what happens with the brain. So we've got the paradox. How do we make sense of this? So the brain is constantly making sense and doing sense making, and then it's predicting what the outcomes may be. Now, let me show you something. 
I got a kick out of this when I first learned about it. This is called the Kinesia Triangle or the Kinesia Effect. This is something that was created and kind of brought into the world of psychology in the mid-1950s by an Italian psychologist named Gaetano Kinesia. Now, if I were to ask you, how many large triangles do you see on the screen? Most people would say two, except for the people who never answer me because they think it's a trick question. And they're right. It is a trick question. The reality is, is that there actually are no triangles on the page. In fact, what we have is just an arrangement of symbols or graphics. You can see to your far left, there's kind of what, um, if for those of you who love the video games from the 80s and 90s, a little Pac-Man figure. And then to the right of that is just some kind of divots or carrots. There's no triangle here. What happens is that the brain predicts when they are arranged in a certain way, what is missing to fill it in. So what the brain says when, it's, when these images or these graphics are arranged in a certain way, it says it pulls from its data, from its life experience to figure out what can fit in there. And it says, I've had geometry, I've had algebra. I think triangles fit in that. And so it begins to fill it in and we perceive a triangle. It is predicting based on our experiences and our information. And then we see it, we perceive triangle. But here, it's not just filling in and predicting, it also begins to have an impact to influence what we perceive and how we perceive it. So another question beyond how many triangles do you see, large triangles, I also ask, what else do you notice? And here's something that often comes up. Many people look at this and say, that large white triangle that's not really there, that's out front, that's also brighter than the background white. It also is lifted up a little bit off the page. People perceive that, but that also is not there. The triangle is the same intensity of whiteness as the background white of the page, and it also is not uh, lifted up off the page. But we begin to use the prediction and perception together to begin to fuel a picture. These become what Lisa Barrett-Fellman calls sort of our social and affective realities. The social is what we all agree on. We start to see things a certain way. We agree that that's what it is. And the affective part is how it feels to us. And we're going to get to that part later because when we start to create these realities, we start to feel and create and generate ways of feeling throughout as well. And that is important because we have to start thinking about things like empathy and compassion as we move through it. So what do I mean by empathy and compassion? One of the ways I look at it to give us a baseline is to think about it as a multi-part definition. If we start with empathy and assume it's a building block of compassion, I like to use these two components. The first one is the ability to experience and understand what others feel. Now, if we stop there, some people who may be familiar with this sort of sympathy, empathy, compassion world, you might say that that first part sounds like sympathy, right? So imagine you are talking with a young child that looks a little sad and you say, why are you sad? And they say, my friend is sad. My mommy's sad. There's no healthy boundary there's just a, a, an acknowledgement, a recognition that somebody is feeling a certain way and then you feel that way. But that's not enough 
to be empathy. To be empathy, you need that plus a simultaneous sort of establishing of a healthy boundary between what's yours and what's the other person's feelings and perspectives. And it is with that boundary that we begin to formulate empathy. Now, sympathy is a building block of empathy. Empathy is a building block of compassion. So I like to think of empathy and compassion as empathy and action. So how do we move empathy and put it into action to help it become compassion? And it's by asking this simple question, what will truly serve? What will help support and serve the highest good and best outcome for all? And when you think about this, it is not a self-focused question. It takes it out beyond just the self. And as leaders, we are responsible for the people who are in our charge, not who we are in charge of. And with that, we begin to ask these questions more broadly. What's important now? What would serve the highest good and outcome? And when we do that, we begin to shift into compassion. Because as I said a moment ago, the rest can become functional. And people care about how they feel in your presence as leaders. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So if I could put a pin in that and just say, if you all have maybe heard this from the late Maya Angelou, that people will forget what you said. They'll forget what you did, but they will never forget how you made them feel. So pause there for a moment and think about that. Think about the leaders that have been most impactful to you. You may say, oh, they said this, they did that, and I appreciated that. When you see word, you hear words and you see actions, it evokes a certain physiological response, emotional response in you, and that builds the connection to that person, to that leader, that their words, their actions are aligning with what's important to the greater good. And so we do that in a very powerful way. The other thing that I think is really incredible is to remember this, that sometimes people think that these things they put in the bucket of this label called soft skills. And I don't know about you. I don't think there's anything soft or easy about building these capacities because technical process things where you do step one, step two, step three, those are very easy to learn. What is often challenging for most of us is the people part. How do we be healthy and navigate the people part in a way that's inclusive and creates belonging and sustainable and positive impact and performance? That is not easy. But when we infuse it with compassion, the one thing I will say is that it becomes powerful. And so I'm going to end this piece, this session on this, uh, this quote that is one of my favorites from Paul Gilbert, the founder of the Compassionate Mind Inst uh, Foundation. And he says this about compassion. It is one of the most important declarations of strength and courage known to humanity. It's difficult and powerful, but also is infectious and influential. And it's universally recognized as a motivation that has the ability to change the world. So when you think about how your brain is full day after day processing paradox, trying to do sense-making and making sense, 
building prediction after prediction after prediction, informing and infusing your perception. Remember that the way that we can expand that as we create more inclusive cultures with those with whom we intersect is by also continuing to build that body awareness, but now the mental narratives and awareness and threading throughout it all, compassion, our empathy and action. All right. Well, we're going to pause here for this session. Thanks for sticking with us. And I hope that you find this practice very helpful in this practice that I'm going to say right now. After this session, I invite you to take a few moments to think about where there are opportunities for you to discover where you might be thinking a certain way, where your perceptions might be a little narrow. Maybe you might need to do this in conversation with someone else, perhaps another colleague or another leader in your organization. Begin to expand your data set and look for opportunities to do that. And that those opportunities surround us. They could be by attending a different kind of group in your organization, perhaps another ERG to expand your awareness and understanding. It might be asking more questions as opposed to telling more answers. The beauty is in the discovery and in the journey. So with that, I wish you a happy journey and look forward to seeing you for our next and final session for Take Good Care.